it's good to see all of you this morning, all of you who have come through another week, thanks to God's faithfulness and generosity, and uh, we welcome each and every one of you with open hearts. I want to start this message by uh, telling you a little bit about what I enjoy about my work um, Monday through Friday. I get a chance to see family dynamics. So much of my work entails home visits, and so I get to go to homes, and I get to meet families, and I get to watch family dynamics. And I am nosy, and I am observant, and I love to just watch uh, how people interact with, with one another. And one thing I get to see on the one hand is um, moms with small children, and they, they look utterly exhausted and utterly filled with joy, and I get to see that in their faces as they embrace their children and enjoy the family dynamics. I also get to see, this was pre-COVID days, but I love to see elementary children bounding off school buses and running home running home because they know that at home they're going to be welcomed, they're going to be received, and there's much thankfulness and expectations and joy there to meet them with their parents and their, their grandparents. I get to see this as I go and watch family dynamics. But on the other hand, I, I see other things out there. These things are very disturbing. One comes to my mind about um, in the front yard, I, I met uh, a father, and from all appearances, and I suppose it's true, he, he looked jovial, and he looked reasonable, and he has a family. And I was there to do some business in the front yard when a six- or seven-year-old son um, was out there as well, but he was kind of distant from us. He was about 20 feet or so, just standing there, and his father turned and looked at him and, and um, summoned him to come, and he just stood there and he looked, and with a little bit of impatience that started coming over the man's face, he, he, he asked again, he said, you, you need to come over here, son, and he just kind of stood a little bit, and then he took a step back, and I think that upset the man a bit, but he stayed there and he told him to come again. I'm telling you, son, come, come to me. And he turned his back to his father and he ran off, ran off to the backyard where we couldn't see him. And so his father turned and looked at me and said, let's just do what we're supposed to do here. Let's get this thing done now. And so we did business and then I left. And as I was pondering that episode, I became sad. I don't know what's happening there in the family, and I hope all is well, but I, I became sad because I started seeing a living parable of millions and millions and millions of people who hear about the fatherhood of God. And they just stand there. And they don't move forward. And then they might hear a summon, come to me, 
Come to me. And there's this suspicion that kind of comes over people. And they're distant from God. And they don't believe that God has their best interest at heart. And so they just stand there. They might even take a step back. And you hear this over and over and over again. An invitation, a summon. Come to me. Come home to me. And they turn their back to God and run off into the world where they're charmed with certain pleasures and promises of a better life apart from God and in the world. And that saddens me. That saddens me indeed. And we come to a a quote from a, a, a theologian that I highly recommend. And John Owen, in one of his books, Communion with God, said something that will linger with me, perhaps all the days of my earthly life at least. He said about this incident, so long as the father is seen as harsh and judging and condemning, the soul is filled with fear and dread every time it comes to him. So in Scripture we read of sinners fleeing, fleeing and hiding from him. But when God, who is the Father, is seen as a Father filled with love, the soul is filled with love to God in return. And so when we pick up the Scriptures and we begin to read the Scriptures, we start right in Genesis and we see our original parents, Adam and Eve, and we see how sin entered the world and they plunged all humanity into depravity through their sin. And then we see the sweetness of our sovereign God, God the Father, moving towards them saying, Adam, Adam, where are you? As the summon goes off. And where do they go but they hide? They're filled with shame and they hide away from God and into the world. And over and over and over, we see this pattern. God calling people and God and people filled with shame, under guilt, intuitively, innately. They know that there is penalty for something called sin and they run away instead of toward God. And as we look into the prophets, they've been saying this over and over again. My mind went to Hosea. The same time as our passage for this morning in 8th century B.C. And Hosea looks at the children of Israel and he writes these words. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away and kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet, it was I, Yahweh is speaking here, God Almighty, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up into my arms, but they did not know that I was healing them. I led them with the cords of kindness and the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. 
they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume their bars on the gates, and devour them because their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out over and over, he shall not raise them up at all. That's a contemporary of Amos that we've been studying week in and week out. 8th century B.C. in Israel. The 12 northern tribes, a separated, broken nation, and these 10 tribes of, of Israel, they never had a good king. They led the people away, and God sent prophets in over and over again. Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, Joel, and now Amos. And this is where we find ourselves today. This summon over and over again will come to an end. God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And there is an end. If there is a recalcitrant, hardened, distant heart that turns the back to God and runs into the world, there will come a time called the end. And that is where we find ourselves this morning in Amos chapter 8. Please stand with me at the reading of God's word and open your hearts and open your Bibles to Amos chapter 8 and stand with reverential awe at this great and glorious God. Chapter 8, verse 1 reads, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat? The Lord, has spoke, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? 
and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn the feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning of an only child, an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the loving, lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samara and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, I just pray that you soften our hearts, illumine our eyes, open our lives, just fillet us for your gaze and your grace. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So, we have seen through Pastor Garrison, Amos, week in and week out, you have seen these themes about judgment. And, and this heart that is unrepentant. And it's been billowing week after week, this thunder pounding over and over. And now we hit chapter 8. In these 14 verses, you can extract from it a summary sentence that I would for you to remember. I would like you to write it down. This is a sentence that tries to summarize the 14 verses so that you can take it home and pondered a little bit more. The sentence that I would like for you to remember is this. The end has come upon the unrighteous in a certain way and on a certain day. That's the big idea. That's the, the summary sentence that I would for you to remember. This passage and this message is organized into three parts. In verses 1 and 2, we see the end has come upon the unrighteous. And then he now describes that for us, telling us in a certain way, the end has come upon the unrighteous. And in verses 3 through 14, the rest of the chapter, he describes this end, the end, in a certain way. And then he shifts, it's kind of mingled in all of this, but then he says the end will come on the unrighteous in a certain way, on a certain day. And so that's what this message is all about, and it will be organized like that and flow like that. The first piece to that, verses 1 and 2, we come to the end has come upon the unrighteous. 
And so it's interesting to me that we've been listening to the thunderous voice of Yahweh coming at Israel week in and week out. And, and now we, we, we see the Lord comes to Amos and he wants to show something before he says something. And so he comes to him and he says, here is a basket of summer fruit. He puts it before Amos and he says, what do you see? And Amos goes, it's a, it's a basket of summer fruit. He gets it right. <laughs> he says it just like the Lord said it. But what Amos is doing here is he's observing. And he observes accurately, but he will not take the next step into interpretation. He's going to leave that for the Lord. He's a smart man. And so here's a basket of summer fruit. And Amos says, it's a basket of summer fruit. And now in verse 2, he gives the interpretation. The end is coming upon the unrighteous. That's the interpretation. So what he wants Amos to see, what he wants us to see in a basket of summer fruit is that the harvest is over. The summer is over. This, this whole harvest is picked up, put into a basket, and now it's ready. It's ripe. It is prepared. For what? For consumption. For devouring. Yahweh's patience has met its end, and now the end is coming upon the unrighteous. Like a summer fruit basket, there will be devouring, there will be consuming. That's the big idea there. Verse 2. The end has come upon the righteous. But then he doesn't stop there. He wants to reach the imagination of the hearers. And so he gets the fruit out there, and now he's going to describe this end. And he describes it in awful situation, devouring, consuming. All through verses 3 through 14, He's going to look at it in different angles. We'll call it three features or maybe three characteristics of the end has come upon the unrighteous. The first one in verse 3, we could say is, it is inescapable. This end is inescapable. So look down again at verse 3, and you see the songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, so many dead bodies, thrones strewn everywhere, blood everywhere. Silence. He's, he's describing the 727 B.C. down to about 722 B.C., about five years, the Assyrians led by Shennacherib and other kings, Sargon. And they, they were up in the north, northwest, 
dealing with things off the east and the north. And then Israel, this small little nation, doesn't give them tribute and actually starts to pull away from them and, and develop a coalition with maybe like Egypt or Syria. And they think that they're going to just mount up and keep protection from this Assyrian nation. Syria is not going to take it at all. And so with big guns, big swords, I should say, they come marching in. And verse 3 is just a little snapshot. They come in, they start moving through Samaria, and it says their sword was raging. Some versions say flashing this way and that way. Men and women and boys and girls maimed and mutilated and blood is everywhere and they're taking bodies and they're throwing them and then it's like a big graveyard. You walk into it and you listen and all you hear is that's the picture here. It's utterly inescapable. No one leaves without being judged. And then he goes on in verses 3 through 14. And he starts talking about the inevitability of this judgment. Verses 4 through 6 capture that this end is inevitable because God said right at the get-go, right in chapter 2 of Genesis, when you take of the fruit, you will surely die. There is judgment on sin. Sin is never winked at. It's never swept under the rug. God is not like a senile grandpa that just smiles and giggles at every human being and hasn't a clue what's going on. That's not our God in the scriptures. He knows everything, and he knows depravity and sinfulness and treachery and treasonous thoughts and intentions of the heart, moving away from God. And so 4 through 6 captures this. I guess if you put down a list of the sins, it might have like two sins, so to speak, in this list. The first one, oppressing and exploiting the needy and the poor in the land. We have heard this week in and week out. Here's the vulnerable. They need help. And Israel was hardening up, cold, indifferent over human needs. Sinful. Gross, inacceptable. And then you see another one, dealing deceitfully with customers who need food. And that's enough right there. The gavel goes down. You're guilty. But then upon looking at it a little bit closer, we almost see like the anatomy of sin. It's almost like we get the stethoscope, and it's kind of put on the heart of the ten tribes of Israel. In verse 5, you who are doing this, saying, and now we start seeing something a little broader, deeper, more thematic. Anytime you get in the scriptures and, and the writer is saying, this massive group called a nation is saying certain things, surely they don't mean that 600,000, a million people constantly are saying verbatim these words. That's not the point. The point is that there is a, 
a narrative, a thought pattern, self-talk going on in the soul. And it says this as its theme. Listen, listen to it again. Verse 5, saying, Oh, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances? And on and on it goes. What their hearts are saying, in essence, is we absolutely adore our prophets and we hate God's prophets. The spelling's important there. I didn't write it down. We love our prophets, the P-R-O-F-I-T-S. They love money. They love money. And so they're amassing everything they possibly can in order to get money. Jesus is the one who said it, wasn't it? You cannot serve God and money. You'll love the one and hate the other, despise the one and, and cherish the other. You cannot serve both simultaneously. Choose. And here we see this thematic self-talk, this narrative in the imagination saying, I love my prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. And you know what I'm going to do to amass more? I, I'm going to look at an assembly like this. I'm going to look at litur liturgical activities and go, man, we are wasting some time. Why are we just sitting here and listening and doing these things? And we'll have this odd little habit of, of doing this. Is this about over? We got to get to the troll and have a burger. We got to go to the NFL on TV today. We got to get out of here. That's what's happening in 8th century BC with the festivals, the new moon, the Sabbath. Why? Because their heart is not with God. Their heart is elsewhere. They love something else more than what God is offering as he calls people to gather in assembly together. And then they say, well, we're going to make the, the ephah small and the shekel great. It's just a way of, of trickery. It, 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 these, are, these are measurements. And the way they would do it then is they would they would be deceitful with their balances and their measurements and say, you owe us this amount. And then the poor and the others would just put out and they would get less than what they paid for. And the profits were getting bigger and bigger in their pockets. And then if anyone like Amos would stick their nose in our business, we hate him. We hate the word. We don't want to hear from the Lord because he's going to be our killjoy. He's going to ruin this gig. What an awful heart. What an awful heart. Apart from Jesus Christ, we all have. A love of money will cool our hearts and, 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 and put calluses on our soul when we look at people in vulnerable situations and say, not my problem. 
money has a tendency to give us something, doesn't it? He says you cannot serve. How, do you, how in the world would you serve money? You don't bow down and worship a piece of paper. What, what, what does he mean by that? Money is, is, is a symbol. It's currency of I can control the outcome of my life. I can get what I really want, and I can preserve what I really need, and I can distance myself from difficulties and, and, and harassments and inconveniences. I can be in control of my life. And the Bible calls us to Trust in the Lord with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Follow him with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. You see the thing? So this is a stethoscope on Israel. And I would ask you just to gently take it off of 8th century northern tribes of Israel and just gently put it on your heart from time to time. What are you hearing yourself say? What makes your life dazzling? What gives you promising future? What do you bank your hope on? What are you after? What is your desire? Those kinds of things. This is the anatomy of sin. And sin will always be judged. And so in this passage here and all through the Bible, the inevitability of the day, judgment, is here. And then he goes on in verses 7 through 14. And now he's going to describe the end that is coming upon the unrighteous in a certain way. And it's almost unspeakable. For example, verse 7. Never being forgiven. Let, Let it rest on you. When, when you offend someone, when you hurt someone, and you love someone, and you go to someone, and you confess that sin to someone, you just want to hear, I forgive you. And an embrace of some sort, a gentle smile of saying, I, I re-welcome you into my life. Never, ever will you be forgiven, says the Lord. Or verse 8, Always as being drowned. The day, the end has come upon the unrighteous. And their experience is like the Nile River that had this, this, this movement. And, 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 and the flood season, it would rise and go out onto the plains And then it would toss and turn, and then it would recede and come back into a smaller river. And on the banks would be bloated animals and even bloated people. And these animals and people are in this this churning water. They're drowning. They're drowning. Think of it. For all eternity can't get any oxygen You can't die. You just keep living forever and ever as a bloated deadness for all eternity. It doesn't stop. Verses 9 and 10. 
I'm just going to turn your feasts into mourning, your songs into lamentations, sackcloth, so on and so forth. I will make it like the mourning of an only child, an only son. And the end of it is a bitter day. Have you ever been around a mom who has lost a child? They never, ever say, will you please pass me a tissue and dab a little piece of water coming out of the eye. They are wailing. They are moaning. They're groaning over and over again. It's awful. It's awful. And he's describing the end upon the unrighteous. That's what he's doing. And in this culture, if you don't have that sun to keep going, you're not extending the progeny. You're not extending the lineage. Your, your name is disappeared. You're forgotten. It's done. It's gone. You don't go into the tomorrows. In other words, it's absolutely hopeless. That's the picture here. And it's awful. It's unspeakable. It's inevitable. It's inescapable. And then... Verses 11 through 13. He just doesn't stop, does he? You will never, ever again hear the very sweet voice of the Lord. Never? I, I mean, never? No. Darkness. Gloomy darkness. Silence with the exception of screams and wailing and moanings. But never the, the very voice of the Lord, never, never a sense of promise, of hope, of love. No, never, you will never ever hear again the very words of the Lord. And then it ends. Oh God, it ends in verse 14. And you will never rise again. You'll never rise The end has come upon the unrighteous in a certain way. And now he takes his focus and says, on a certain day. Verses 3, 9, and 13, if you want to box it, it says, that day, that day, that day, what day? And the Bible always talks like this. It's called typology, but it, 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 will, it will give you an episode, and you look at it and say, wow. And then another book later or another century later, and it'll, it'll have thematic sounds to that that point back to that, but this one is increasing in its intensity, and then it goes again and again down through the scriptures, and it ascends, and it increases in intensity, and, and you hear these themes, these echoes coming and coming, and that day, like Genesis chapter 7, that day when at noontime it went all dark, and then the reigning judgment of God hit the world, and there's a deluge, a flood, and that day millions died under judgment except he cupped his arms around a few and got them through the judgment into salvation and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my glory that day. 
or fast forward and go into Exodus 10. We see the children of Israel in slavery. You know the story of Egypt, and you know the story about Exodus, and you know the story about redemption, but the ninth plague hits noonday. Bright, sunny, everything's fine, right? And darkness comes over the land. So dark that it says you can actually feel. It's creepy dark. And then judgment lands. The plagues hit. The firstborns, people are screaming and crying. And then he cups his hands around a few and takes them through judgment and towards the promised land. And says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my glory and your good. And then we fast forward to the 8th century B.C. where we're at right now. And look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, on that day I will make the sun go down at noon. And this was the Assyrian captivity. And darkness filled the land. And he turned joy into mourning. And then there was silence with God's voice. And then there's another day that's coming. I don't know the date. I don't think anyone knows the date except God. But it's coming. And in Revelation chapter 6, we see at noonday, it goes dark. And the plagues hit. Judgment is, is descending. And the joy that was enjoyed by the world was turned into mourning. And now silence. God is not speaking anymore other than judgment. Eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord. That's the theme, isn't it? But we leapfrogged over another day. That day, that day, April 3rd, A.D. 33. You can read about it in Mark chapter 15, verse 33. That day, we look at it in scriptures, and we see that it was on that day, on Golgotha. A strange word that describes a strange place. It looks almost like a skull. And on this skull-like place was the sight of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, being crucified. And at 9 a.m., they laid him down and started pounding stakes into his wrists and into his feet cries, cries were going out, and they hoisted him up along with other criminals. That day, from 9 a.m. to noon, there was wailing and crying. And what was he doing on the cross? He's never sinned in his life. He's perfect. But he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's bearing the weight of all of God's people, all of God's chosen people, right on him. And then at noon, here comes the darkness. 
and it went across the land. And all those who were merry became mournful. And now, Jesus at 3 p.m. says his last words. It is finished. And he died. And God's voice stopped. Because the logos, the word, Jesus himself was put into a grave. Now you can't hear God at all. It's done. What happened? And now, beloved, here's the hope for each and every one of you. If you do not know Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, as your Savior, if you haven't turned from your sins and trusted Him and run to Him and put your hope in Him and adore Him and follow Him through the waters of baptism and swearing allegiance to the King, this might very well be your day of salvation. Because on Sunday morning, there was a little peak over the horizon. And it's light. It's light. It's, it's, it's dispensing the darkness. And out from the grave, the sun came to chase away all the darkness, to turn mourning into joy. And so we can hear God's word, namely Christ, over and over again for all eternity. Is that not hope or what? All this darkness, all this gloom, all this judgment, all this sin is uplifted and taken away by the Lamb of God. And now there's hope. 